Todd Kashtan is one of the world's leading psychology researchers. Scott and I hugely enjoyed our conversation in this wide-ranging interview. We discuss the mental challenges of social media, how to be genuinely curious in the face of opposing views, and numerous well-being strategies. Todd is not only a pioneering researcher, but also a compelling communicator, and we hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling, Scott? I'm feeling awesome. Uh, I've been looking forward to today's conversation for weeks, honestly. I know this is going to be a great show. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling profoundly defiant today as we prepare to speak to our guest, Todd Mm. Kashtan, author of the upcoming book, The Art of Insubordination. I know. I can't wait to get that book. Um, So let me me, uh, set the stage a little bit, can I? Sure. So uh, in addition to his upcoming book, The Art of Insubordination, uh, Todd's also written The Upside of Your Dark Side, um, and I've been waiting to find out if there's an upside to your dark side, John, so I'm glad to know that there's hope. <laughs> What's the risk? <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned, The Art of Insubordination, which is written for those of us who want to be heard, make change, and rebel against an unhealthy, stagnant status quo. In addition, Todd is among the world's top experts on the psychology of well-being psychological strengths, mental agility, and social relationships. His research has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, including multiple articles in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and Forbes. He received the Distinguished Research Fellow Award from the International Society for the Quality of Life in 2012, among many other awards and accolades. And as a professor of psychology and a leading educator to the public, Todd translates state-of-the-art science for practical application to improve our everyday lives. He gave a TEDx talk on the psychological flexibility and writes the Curious blog for Psychology Today, which is enjoyed by more than 4 million readers. He founded the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason University, which has produced over 210 peer-reviewed journal articles on well-being and resilience, psychological flexibility, meaning and purpose in life, curiosity, and managing social anxiety. And one more thing, as I understand it, he enjoys a good whiskey, which already makes him one of my new best friends. Todd, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Ed, thanks for having me here. Thanks for the the very, very generous opening. Um, Todd, welcome. I'm delighted you have you on the show. Um, I I want to build on the whiskey thing because I think you you said in your intro that um, you work out relentlessly so that you can enjoy good whiskey and Italian food. That sounds like a really good strategy. And it seems to be working as well by the looks of you. (laughs) I think Arnold Schwarzenegger and Popping Iron missed this this key point and was really only focused on trying to increase the size of his calves and pecs. Um, There's too much good whiskey, too many good steaks, too many good black and white DEI cookies out there. Uh, We need to be (laughs) working out for something. Yeah, I I, 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 as I was watching your um, TEDx talk um, a while back, I thought this is the Mark Wahlberg of psychology. You know, so I hope <laughs> you don't mind. <laughs> Make good movies. So, can we start with your your personal mantra, which you describe as a life devoted to the scientific exploration of uncharted human behavior and its practical application to improve lives? What What was the motivation, the drive behind this mission? Where Where was the turning point in your life that put you on that course? I mean, there's, there's a few points where I think someone decides that they want to go into psychology and particularly to, to study what other people haven't studied before. I mean, for me personally, I think one of the key points is that uh, I lost my mom when I was 12 uh, to breast cancer. My twin brother and I, I'm, I'm a twin with twins, one of those rare combinations. That's interesting in and of itself. Uh, I was raised by my grandmother. And when you're raised by someone in their 70s, when you are just about hitting puberty, Uh, There's a complex mix of generation strife where you've got rebellion is built into your system. You have, you grab autonomy everywhere. Uh, They're unable to keep up with you physically and you learn everything trial and error. And I, and I think I learned a lot about what not to do. And over the course, as I get older, I realized, wow, there's a lot of skills about, about being adaptable, about being situationally aware, about being alone in the world, whether that's perception-wise, you have a social support system and being strong, resilient, and be able to go through the life without a series of grievances and offenses and try not to offend too many people. And 
there are psychological strategies to be taught. And my life is not the way that I teach people, but my life was a, was a motivation of, I don't want people, especially children, adolescents, and adults who didn't have role models to have to go through this alone. Hmm. So can we, can we focus in on well-being, your well-being lab? Um, can, we, can we talk a little bit about you know, what you're trying to discover? Because it seems to cover quite a big set of areas. Well, I mean, we cover a lot of territory. We had a study that was got some media coverage in Time Magazine on what types of sexual experiences lead to the most pleasure and meaning the subsequent day. And it was, we found some very interesting findings there. We asked a subsequent question, which was, if you are a socially anxious person who really fears that your perceived flaws are visible to another person, does having a sexual experience make the next day harder or easier now they're not with you as you're navigating the social world. Uh, we've asked questions about um, how do you cultivate curiosity in the workplace? And then more recently, we, we just got uh, over a million dollars to study um, how do we bridge the moral divide between conservatives and liberals, not so that they can love each other and spend a lot of time with each other, but just that they can be open-minded and listen to each other and have some productive conflicts where at the end, they might not even agree with each other, but the idea of beginning with loathing and ending with loathing, we're trying to figure out psychological techniques to reduce that. So we, we study all sorts of whatever seems to be cool in the world. And it's fun to talk about at a cocktail party we try to capture. Let's pick that last one up in terms of trying to, to, to bridge some of this um, political tribal divide that's happened. How can you do that when the source of it, which seems to be social media, um, which prevents the nuance and the human connection taking place because it's very hard to have some of that kind of building up when you're in the room with people are, are you looking at it in, in in that context oh there's there's no doubt we're looking at it and in terms of face-to-face one-on-one encounters where you could see the other human being as you, you know and as you say jean like you know it's a totally different experience we're, t- we're doing it in texts and chat rooms where you're not seeing the person but at least there's some back and forth without um, a public audience that's watching you like an episode of Gladiator where people are just cheering for someone to get crushed and, and for their lives to be destroyed. And then we're also doing this in, just in terms of um, intrapersonal, uh, just having people reflecting on their experiences and hearing the stories of other people and seeing what moves people, not necessarily to change their views, because that's not really what we're interested in. We're interested in can we coexist? I mean, mm. the fact is, going back to the sociological problem is that for those of us that have kids, when we go drop off our kids at school in my County, it'll be next week. Um, I don't know which one of the parents have different political views than me. I actually don't care, but that's what I study. But I know that there's a good portion of parents. They don't want to know, or if they find out they're going to reject, isolate, criticize, vilify people that don't have their political views. That's a problem because they're, we're there for their kids, for our kids. Mm. Extend that to the workplace, extend that to government, extend that to, you know, nonprofits and extend that to having a, a civic, civic community engagement. And you have all of these third rails that really are relatively irrelevant to whatever the primary superordinate task is. There's so much to unpick here. Um, you know, there was a there was a school board meeting in my county just uh, a week or so ago that led to that sort of third rail experience in terms of people's um, emotional reactivity um, on both sides of their sort of political positioning, which I find the whole thing to be, you know, utterly surprising this last sort of 18 months in terms of how this virus became, you know, a, a way to fuller, further, politi- you know, polarize the world. So what are you what are you discovering in this? What can we be doing both on a macro level, but maybe more importantly, how do we take care of our own sense of psychological well-being today in the middle of all this divisiveness? Yeah, so there's there's really two parts you have there. One is kind of resolving it, one is self-care. So our work is still preliminary. So let me discuss some work from colleagues in terms of what they've been discovering. Um, that are that are showing some replicability and meaning that the meaning that the, the findings are showing up over and over again repeatedly and that they're not just one shot weird findings. Sure. Um, you know what you know one of the things that were that ends up being really fundamentally important in terms of trying to neutralize or reduce the static in the room. That's one part of this. Is 
it's going to be, it's not going to be about facts. So I'm a scientist. I like facts. I like evidence. I like the search for truth. When you come to these emotionally, emotionally provocative issues that are tied to people's identities, we have to be able to willing to push that aside for a second and have the intellectual humility and really reduce the power of our ego to try to win and try to more have a learning orientation, which is that what people want to know is that people want to be heard. People want to know that their, their, their stability and security in the groups they care about are going to, are going to last beyond this conversation. And people, people want to know that you understand, tolerate, and respect them as a human first, and then second, that these conversations um, are not them and, you're not, and your relationship isn't on the line. Now, not, both people are unlikely to have those views. And so some of the things that you can do, for example, you know, if I was to go out and talk to a bunch of flat earthers, the initial response is to mock them, criticize them. And as, you know, even though I have yet to travel around the world by ship and completely clarify with my own physical senses that the world is round, but I believe the world's round. Um, if you're meeting with these people, it's not about that these are scientifically illiterate people. Another way is to reframe them is that these are people that have a real interest in understanding the world, but somewhere or someone led them astray. And so if we can view them with the respect and tolerance um, when we're face-to-face, when we're communicating with them, of asking them, hey, so what's the best evidence you have for a flat earth? Or ask them on the flip side, um, what is it that has you push against Carl Sagan, Richard Feynman, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and all this work out there. And then you ask the question, what evidence or proof would you need that would make you change your mind? And you ask these questions from a place of curiosity, not from a place of I'm going to have a gotcha question. And if you do these kind of questions and you really are interested in the answers and you're really looking not to win the debate, you'd be surprised how receptive people are to having a conversation. These are people that want to talk about their experience Mm. and they're not going to respond well if you put them on the defense. Mm. One of the um, themes of our show and talking to some of the neuroscientists that have been on is around how the brain is constantly tracking uh, uncertainty um, and that uh, you know, kind of highest level of awareness, our mecha cognitive awareness is is about tracking uncertainty. And when, when we make predictions and the, when the reality deviates, then we we experience emotional reactions to that and fear and uncertainty and so on. And I suppose one one of the um, the hallmarks of these conversations is they're very unpredictable. People go in with an immediate kind of sense that I don't know where this is going. I don't know what, who you are, what you're coming from, and so on. So we make a whole bunch of assumptions, which might be completely wrong, um, to create some form of certainty. We cling on to that certainty. What you're talking about in, you're, you're trying to break that, um, that prediction that people are making that you're coming here to judge me and you're coming here to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, how, how do you get to first base in terms of how in how you show up forget the questions and the approach at the moment but how do you orientate yourself so because it's one thing to say i'm curious but it's really hard when you when you have a strong profound belief that someone's wrong not to show up emotionally <laughs> as non-curious right how do you do it yeah so first jean let me just say is um i love the framework of uncertainty management and the idea of our our brain's you know, there's so many, there's so many discussions in textbooks and articles and blogs about, you know, why do we have three pound brains? What happened over the course of 2.5 million years to get us to where we are? And I, and I, and I really strongly believe that you're, you've hit one of the, the crucial elements is um, we're prediction machines. And we, we have, we're dealing with uncertainty. That's, that is our legacy from our ancestors. Um, so to answer your question, and I, and I don't want to make it sound as simple as this, so think of this as more as one tool in a psychological kit, is what is going to be your goals and orientation prior to having any interaction whatsoever? And you can consider you know, at least two goals. One could be to persuade. One could be to learn. And I think most people lead towards persuasion, particularly on social media. And But there's a third one as well, which was... I want to showcase that I'm a good group member 
of where, whatever I identify with. And that's not persuasion. That's not learning. I'm speaking to an audience that's not the person I'm actually debating, interacting, or having a conflict with. This is, and, and, you know, and we can use the word disingenuous. We can use the word virtue signaling. I think it's better just to describe it more precisely. These are identity, identity relevant behaviors and cognitions that you're engaging in. And this way it avoids, because these terms have been co-opted in some ways, virtue signaling and disingenuousness. And we do this, and we do this reflexively. We don't realize that we are not actually having a conversation. We have pre-digested chunks in our brain of information and conversation tidbits that we know if we throw these out, we are going to get 300 likes. We are going to get a pat on the head. We're going to get a message that says, you know what? You did the right thing. You're on the right side of history. I'm glad that was you. And we really respond strongly like dopaminergically, like elation wise, like um, sense of security and content with these, with these like responses. And what I would say is, and I, and I think this is, there's a lot of research to back this up, but it's also practical, is that try hard to really resist the temptation to behave in ways to be likable as opposed to having an effective human interaction. So one of your um, TED Talks um, starts with you talking about a story around your kids and how that you're a terrible father, which obviously gets the audience really curious. Um, and, uh, and because you're quite a, uh, you know, like a big presence, you, you can imagine you, you can picture you with your five-year-old daughter there sitting there and you're towering over them with your huge muscles and your, um, your intimidating beard. And so on. So we're all kind of pent up. And then you introduce the knife. So tell us this story because, you know, there's some really interesting takeaways there in terms of parenting. It's funny. I, um, once I do a story and a talk, I almost I never repeat them again. Um, yeah. um, so in, in a nutshell, and I don't even remember the girl's ages then. Let's, so let's say my twins were maybe eight at the time and yeah. a friend of theirs was over. Um, I tend to be more European even though I'm a New Yorker in terms of taking my 18.7 minute nap around two o'clock each day. And, um, and I woke up from one of these naps and I heard a bunch of girls screaming and you have, when you have three daughters, there's screams of joy, elation and pain. Um, your brain just processes. There are loud sounds I have to respond to. Popped out of my nap, go into my, my kitchen, no one's there. And then I go into my dining room and there's a large knife in one of the girl's hands and there's red juice dripping down from her arm. And, um, you know, when you come out of a sleep, you are very, you're very, you react to things extremely quickly. And I'm just trying to figure out, as you said before, the prediction machine, what the hell is going on in my household? Um, quickly see the watermelon and realize that they were cutting this watermelon horrendously, like all over the carpet, <laughs> the walls, each other. I mean, they look like one of those, you know, color war races where they throw paint and, disgusting dust and glitter on people. Um, and my, my immediate response was to grab the knife and then to yell at everybody like, you know, what are you doing? Which is how every parenting manual that we don't get would tell us to do and every parenting workshop. And I quickly disarmed that as a curiosity researcher. I was like, okay, like, listen, these kids are, they're trying to be autonomous. They're trying to do something themselves. I never taught them how to cut a watermelon. And so we had, we had a, a nice conversation. Um, the knife was put down and nobody was physically chopped up into pieces. There's no Jeffrey Dahmer moment of this story. Um, and we had a conversation about kind of, you know, you know the, a sense of pride that they actually tried to do this as a group, like their little coalition to kind of figure this out on their own. They sucked at it, but they tried to do it. Nobody got harmed. And if someone got harmed, it would not be a big, big, big deal, except if there was an amputation or someone died. I mean, even a little cut. Uh, and I realized that some people who are listening to this will have a response of saying, you should not have knives around your kid. And I would say, who says so? Like, wh why is that the case? Do, where do we put the stop? Do we stop at screwdrivers? Do we stop at wrenches? I mean, everything can be a weapon if used in an inappropriate manner that happens there. And I think it's one of these, pivot points that you have regularly in every domain of your life is, do you approach with an attitude of compassion and charity or curiosity, or do you avoid 
And that avoidance can come in a place of verbal aggression, quick, quick, quick argumentative response. And if you're an adult figure, domination and control. And I think a lot of leaders have this pivot point. A lot of parents have this pivot point. And we have this on the road when, you know, when, when someone drives close to our car, cuts us off, we have these approach avoidance conflicts. And I think it's just, you know, one example of uh, our lives are about these moments of how we use strengths. It's not about whether we have or don't have these psychological strengths. So let's stay with this for a second, if we can, because, you know, you talked a moment ago about moving from a persuading mindset to a learning mindset. And now you're telling the story about applying curiosity to, to figure out what's going on, which I, which I absolutely love. It, it actually came up in a workshop I was in the other day. It was all around sort of, you know, self-discovery, self-awareness and, and awareness of other people. And, and it, the question was posed, you know, well, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I stay with that? How do I, how do I actually learn more about other people and, and myself? And my response was stay curious, you know, number one, right? Be curious about yourself. Be curious about other people. Be curious about their experiences. But it's easier said than done. Is there any sort of advice that you might have in a practical way of adopting that mindset of curiosity? Yeah. And Scott, I like how you're, you're connecting the dots between these seemingly disparate situations of political partisanship and cutting up a watermelon in my household. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> they, it, it, I can see them being linked quite strongly. <laughs> yeah, they, they are. I mean, you know, um, you know, even as I've been talking so far, there's a lot of actually practical points if you pick apart the, the, the pieces that I'm kind of pulling out. I mean, the thing about curiosity is it's not like these books on happiness where They'll tell you that, you know, you can, it's your decision to decide to be happy or not. You know, um, there's a book, Happy for No Reason, which it always just drives me crazy as a scientist of, uh, no, there's usually a reason. And if it's you, your, your mood, you don't know what mood you're going to be in, but that's not the same thing as happiness. Curiosity is a little bit different. So happiness isn't a thermostat where you could turn it higher and lower on demand. Curiosity, you can, because it's really about the direction of attention. And it's really about the quality of the attention that you're directing. So the first part is to deconstruct what curiosity is. Because Scott, just as you're saying, and it's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm glad everyone in the world is talking about being curious now. I mean, I, I've been researching this since 2001. So I'm, I'm glad people are caught up, but you're right. We have to go beyond saying being curious. So part of it is directing attention with intention and realizing that you can modify the quality of your attention. So you could have this gentle sense of wonder in this conversation right now. Like, I have no idea. You could take this in any direction. You didn't send me questions. I told you you can ask me anything because I'm from New York City and I have totally comfortable talking about provocative conversation topics. Um, so there's, I can have a sense of trying to control myself and how I behave with the hope that I come across as intelligent, as competent, as socially appropriate and acceptable, or... And I realize it's not binary or I can have this gentleness, less pressure on myself, really paying attention to what you're asking, really thinking about, okay, where can we take and pull this in new directions? Because, you know, Jean Scott and myself, like none of us have gotten together before. Like there's some, there's, we're now we're creating something as a team dynamic that's happening here. That power to do that is completely within people's conscious ability and you don't have to build it, but it gets easier as you start to make it a practice, the practice of I can redirect my attention and I can think about how hard or how soft and wondrous I'm going to direct my attention to something. Now, there's another part of that, which is really letting go of the self-presentation motives to try to be smart, to try to be wise and try to be the most important and powerful person in the room. And it is Everybody nods their head and says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do that all the time when I'm with people. No, no, because think about the opposite of that. Nobody's trying to be unintelligent. Nobody's trying to be unlikable. And nobody's trying to be whatever the op unwise in a situation and lacking of having the, the crowd of people you're with being interested in what you're saying. We all have those, those motivations. I'm saying disarm them with intention. Know that they're coming. And then when you go into a conversation, you can have the humility and the really the great opportunity of here, you know, both of you, neither one of you is psychologists. And already I've got 
two cool new frameworks to kind of thinking about curiosity. And even though I've been studying it for, you know, 20 odd years, um, I'm, I never claim I'm the expert or master of this. And I think everybody should really have that attitude of walk into situations with the sense of you're going to learn something if you have this soft, gentle attention. Can we, can we turn to your new book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively? Now, clearly, <laughs> there's a backdrop happening in the world that makes this uh, feel very relevant. But can you, let's not make any assumptions. Why did you write it? What's it about? When's it coming out? So it's been written since January. It was supposed to come out this month. Um, we decided to hold on um, just to kind of make sure that we can marketing publicity stuff. So it's coming out in February. Um, you can, everybody can download the first chapter, which I'm excited because I'm really excited to get this out there. So I started writing this five years ago. I mean, really, this is, you know, my entire life's journey led to this book, but five years of research. So we're talking about before the last presidency, we're talking about before COVID, we're talking about before the modern civil rights, uh, you know, redux that's happening right now. This is really during a period of, essentially is there's always, there's always dysfunctional norms. There's always problematic elements of society. Now that could be local in terms of your school system, where you work, your family environment, um, your household that happens there. Um, when I wrote this, this was, this was around the time, started writing this, this was around the time where gay marriage started, um, was really solidifying, not only as being legal, but as being, because there's two different things. There's the legality, of gay marriage. And then there's the, the normative influence that people realize that, well, why was this ever a problem in the first place? Those are the social norm. So that was about the time that I started writing this. And during that time, it was just the realization of, as this was an amazing social change that should be in the history books far more than anything else that's happened in the past five years. Now, I realize this is debatable, and that's perfectly fine. I'm actually going to argue it's actually more important. And the reason is, I don't think that the world has seen a social change that was so drastic in the course of such a small period of time. In a mere 10 years, you went from Obama speaking publicly that he was against gay marriage. And in a mere 10 years of period, it's basically legalization in every single state in the, in the entire United States that happened there. And there's, there's a lot to be learned about how they did that. And so there's some scientists at Brown University who actually explored this and they actually explored by looking at online chat boards over the course of a 15 year period. And they were looking for how the dialogue may or may not have changed at different stages as it was getting traction. And it's a really good lesson in terms of if you're looking to increase uh, racial, racial equality, if you're looking to increase um, gender equality and kind of uh, reduce pay, you know, pay raise inequity, economic inequality, climate change, gun laws, abortion, uh, you know, immigration laws. I mean, you know, the list is endless. And what, I, what I've been seeing over the course of the five years of writing this book is a lot of people are really have really strong beliefs, a great sense of certainty in their beliefs. They're pushing hard for their beliefs, but they're not really thinking about is there a strategic way to understand the psychology of other people? So this is really like a user's manual of if you follow everything in this book, it is the only way that you're going to have a chance to be successful, but you're never guaranteed success. If you don't follow this, you don't have a chance. Like it's pure luck and serendipity that things will happen. And this is based on 60 years of science on trying to influence other people and trying to get information into the zeitgeist when you are a minority in number. So I was reading something the other day, um, uh, and it was a couple of, um, of uh, it was a physicist and a Nobel writer, um, Isikario, and they were both talking about the fact that, you know, what they were seeing in the world was this, um, this sense that large numbers of, of the population around the world were conflating how they feel about things, their emotions, with purpose. So because they feel something to be true, then it is true. And if they feel something to be right, then it is their purpose without really 
thinking about it, you know, not actually. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested from your perspective about the role that emotions play in, um, you know, the, the, the certainty that people have um, around their beliefs. Yeah, I mean, it's huge, but I would actually say is that um, prob probably there's a reciprocal loop between what you identify with, particularly groups strongly, in terms of who are you, like, and who do you want to be? And then the emotions reside from that in terms of do these, does the information that's coming out in the world, the people who are speaking, the articles that you're reading, um, do they fit with that identity or are they conflicting and causing problems with that identity? That's where those emotions often arise. And then you get this loop where once you get those emotions, um, it makes you want to defend your identity. So it could be your political group. It could be your race. I'm a New Yorker. It's a big part of my identity. I'm a father. It's probably the biggest part of my identity. I've got friends who are in the military. I've got friends who are police officers. I have friends who are first line responders who are, um, uh, you know, in foreign affairs. And so I have friends of different racial categories and different sexual orientations. And because of that, and that's because of a strategic attempt to hold all of those characters in my life simultaneously, especially when they're on both sides of an issue. So you think of, you know, George Floyd and you think of, um, you know, to what degree are the, are the police problematic as an entity, um, healthy as an entity, how much is it, you know, individuals, how much of it is culture? We don't have the answers to the, to the details of giving percentages. But what we do know is that there are multiple perspectives and vantage points. And when you can hold loosely to the fact of the characters in your life you identify with on multiple sides of this issue who are good characters, virtuous characters, well-meaning characters, it forces you to take in nuance. It forces you to question dominant, simplistic narratives for a very complicated topic. And that's one of the strategies kind of, you know, you know for dealing with um, not political polarization, but polarization in general, and then this forced binary thinking that the world is pushing us towards. So quick sound bites, yes or no. Um, are you for people that are black? Yes or no. Um, are you for women having abortion rights? Yes or no. Are you for um, anyone from Afghanistan who wants to escape to immigrate into the United States. And my, if there's anything that I'd want the listeners to hold on to, it's you don't have to allow anyone to push you into a forced binary situation. You're allowed, you're allowed to spread this open for nuance, complexity, uncertainty in there. And you're also allowed to say, I'm not sure, but I'm leading towards this. And here's the reason why. And that's, and one of the things that I would hope to do, you know, with this book is really push people to having the types of conversations and productive conflicts where you can insert the messiness of a topic as opposed to prematurely trying to come to a conclusion quickly. So one of the um, the narratives that's in the media is this lack of nuance and is, is to do with, you know, your socioeconomics place in the in the in the society or your intelligence and so on so it's it's characterized in a very derogatory way often but that's not true is it because you have um you know very sophisticated environments where exactly the same thing's happening and cancel culture is still um you know present in every industry and i'm, I'm just wondering about you know psychology and and your you know, it's a, you, you, you're at the top of the intellectual ladder in terms of, of um, development. Is it, is it happening there as well? Are there areas where you're not allowed to talk? Is the, is the political correctness dominating your environment? Oh, we're the, the academia is the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. And I definitely want to um, uh, pause on the notion of, I actually think that academia is put too much on a pedestal as we are the elite knowledge creators in the world. And as someone who, you know, grew up working in a bric-a-brac shop, um, selling old toasters and, and um, skillets on 7th Avenue and 38th Street, uh, I have an appreciation of wisdom comes from all sorts of folks who have all sorts of different life experiences. And I think it's really important for us to not think that academia is where the, we are the knowledge creators. Uh, but, but the canary in the coal mine in terms of there are topics you are not allowed to ask questions. There are topics that you are automatically on the wrong side 
despite the fact is there is a great deal of uncertainty in a lot of the evidence is definitely present. I mean, one of the things, you know, one of the things, for example, that's just came up with the American Medical Association is the notion of um, there are more than two sexes, you know, conflating sex and gender. And if you care about men, women, biologically born that way, um, men transitioning into women, women transitioning into men, every combination possible, intersex, what you want primarily, number one, is health, well-being, respect, and tolerance. And so when I think about these topics, I think about, okay, is, is the idea of questioning and allowing um, someone's physical sex to be discussed as male or female interfere with people's physical care and well-being from whether it's the medical profession or the psychological profession, which includes psychiatry? The answer is yes, because we have a lot of data on sex differences, some, on biological sex differences. Now, some of those, most, some of those differences are really small. Some of the psychological differences are really small, but they matter. For, I mean, for example, on what we know is, and this is a finding that scientists are still trying to figure out, like, this is, huh, I want to know the reason why. We know that the greater number of women that are on a group team in an organization, the higher level of intelligence, group intelligence in terms of decision-making and finding the optimal solution among a number of different options. They're able to pick the optimal solution in experiments, in tasks, and in real life. Um, it's improved by the, the number of women in the group. Now, there's nothing sexist about that. It can be perceived as such. Now, imagine the results were reverse, where the results found that the, the larger number of men that were on the team, the, the greater the collective intelligence of a group the better they are at making good decisions. The news would go haywire. And it's useful to have the thought experiment. What if the results work the other way? There was a finding several years ago where they found that when they explored um, the remnants of Neanderthals, they were able to get um, some DNA samples from, from the bones and the tendons that were available. I think it was in a cave in France, but I might be wrong. It might, might have been in Spain. And so when they collected the DNA, imagine if the results showed that in terms of Neanderthal DNA, that it was a higher percentage of Neanderthal DNA was in modern individuals that were Black, Latino, Latina, or Asian American compared to whites. Imagine those were the results. The world would go crazy. The academic community would have went crazy. Now, thankfully, but it's sad that I have to say this, the results showed that if you are white, European, European American, that's your descent, is that you're more likely to have Neanderthal DNA in your system in a larger quantities. But these are the things that kind of, I think are important in terms of provocative conversations and questions to ask. What if the results were reversed? Would we hold the same attitude of like, we discovered something interesting or would we bend over backwards trying to disprove the finding because we didn't like the results? The end game should be with these findings, what have we learned and what could we do? And let's start asking really good questions, but you have to be comfortable of exploring uncomfortable territory, you know, in terms of sex differences, racial differences, gender differences, age differences, um, differences between people who are disabled and who are more able and on a continuum that we need to be asking these questions because it's the only way we can find the most effective, efficient ways to intervene and improve people's lives. Here on The Evolving Leader, we are committed to stretching the leadership conversation in every episode, and we invite you to help spread the word. If you have learned or been inspired by something you heard on this podcast, chances are others would too. Please consider sharing your favorite episode with your network on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. I want to hone in, if we can, on this thing you mentioned about identity's role in certainty and the the threat that people experience. Because you mentioned, you know, being a dad is one of your uh, you know, your primary uh, identity roles. And there's nothing that anybody could say or do that would threaten that identity in you, right? And yet, uh, for some, if it's a threat to their political identity, they might literally storm the Capitol in response to, to that threat. 
Um, I'm just cur- curious from a psychological perspective, if we could pull that apart a little bit more because that sort of egoic identity that, it, I guess my question is, is it people with a really strong identity in, in one area of their lives that feel it most threatened or is it actually a weak sense of identity that make it feel more threatened and therefore the reactivity is exponential, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of the research suggests is that there's two elements of this. To what degree do you have a need for you to belong in a particular group? So let's take, um, you know, this example of January 6th of storming the Capitol. To what degree was it important to you that you could find a sense of belonging? Like they, there was, it was an essential quality of your, your status in the group of like, I need to belong. I need to fit in. I need to be valued. I need to be accepted. I need to feel as if I am a non-expendable member of this community that offer value. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have that strong need, that's going to push you to be more reactive to, um, to a resistance to people that disagree with you. And, and it also makes you more susceptible to information and stories that fit with the narrative that your group is being punished, your group is being wronged, and your group mm. needs to do something. The other part of this, which is a little bit more complicated and people aren't talking about, is <clears throat> how certain are you about your sense of belonging? And this gets, and this gets Scott to exactly what you're saying mm. is that if you believe that you have a strong need, but you feel like you're on unstable footing in terms of, do I fit in? Am I accepted? Do I have to prove myself? So it's that combination. It's a profile, strong need to belong, uh, a variable, variable belief that your, your sense of belonging actually exists in this group. That's kind of the toxic combination that makes you um, mm. more susceptible to being defensive and more likely to, to fight and to fight in ways that is um, an unwillingness to consider counter information, unwillingness to consider logic if it means going against your group. But I do want to say that everything I just described has incredible psychological and social value. Because if you think about, you know, the idea of, I mean, here we are, you know, the three of us here, you know, we want to curate knowledge, synthesize what's useful out there in, in digestible ways so that people can improve their lives, their work, their relationships, and their functioning. Mm-hmm. And so for us to feel a strong need to be in this community of knowledge creators and knowledge disseminators, and for us to feel uh, a sense of certainty that we we deserve a platform. We have a platform. We could do something. That's all great. Um, but just know that the same thing that works well for principled, healthy groups is the same thing that's a problematic when the group goes in a direction in terms of harming and causing wrongdoings for other people. Hmm. So the theme of our show is the, obviously the evolving leader. And what we're really trying to do is to help people to think about the world in new ways so that they, they can pr- make good predictions about who they need to be and how they need to evolve as, as individuals. And we're getting viewpoints from obviously lots of different sources from economists and neuroscientists and sports people and psychologists like yourself. If you were thinking about uh, the needs of leadership, given everything that's happening in the world in terms of technology and the social divisions that are taking place. What, what are your kind of, and I'm, I hate to put you on the spot in terms of being reductive, but what would your kind of top three things that you think leaders really need to think about in terms of evolving their, um, their mindset, their, their attitudes, their beliefs, and their approach to the world that you think would help them most? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to play in, in my lane, my category in terms of just writing this book of art of insubordination. I think one of them is to be extremely aware of the conformity pressures and the social pressures that they are instituting and other people are instituting in their culture. And that that culture could be a team, that culture could be an entire organization. Um, the culture could be kind of, um, you know, if you're, you know, if you're Google, if you're Google, you're going to, you know, one of, you know, one of your, you got to think of who your competitors are in terms of being, if you're, you know, if you're Apple, it ends up being Microsoft. 
you have to think, you know, you have to think about as these identity related lenses are pushed onto people, it, it puts them into boxes in terms of how they're going to behave in predictable matters. They're going to be defensive when, when people that are not in their group provide useful information, useful wisdom, useful innovations. And what you really want is you want people to steal like artists. You want people to take all of that wisdom, knowledge, and creativity and then find how can we extract that and use that for our own purposes. And so I think it's, so number one, I would say is be very cognizant of the conformity and social pressures that exist. And at the minimum, know that they do exist. What you don't want to do, if you end up at this point, number one, and say, that's not a problem where I am. Now I know it's ex an extremely problematic element that you're not even aware of it. Hmm. Um, number two is, is, to change the norms of what it means to be a good group member. And I can't really talk too much about our preliminary evidence that we're finding on uh, in terms of reducing the moral divide between conservatives and liberals, but it has relevance to organizations. And that is, is that a good group member has to be reframed. And this is not the, I mean, I've worked in a lot of organizations. This is not the norm. Be reframed as that a good group member will dissent and defy from common thinking, from the orthodoxy, because they believe that everyone appears to be going, the majority is going down a wrong direction. Everyone appears to be thinking in a way that's premature and they're not considering alternatives. And normally what happens is that, you know, scientists have called this the black sheep effect, is that people in our group, this is not outsiders, that in our group that disagree with the things that we all agree upon, we treat them horribly. We, we, we ostracize them, we push them away, we silence them, and that's really problematic. Um, so number two would be to, to alter the norms of what it means to be a good member. And what I would say is you can get very concrete with this. Um, it shouldn't just be on the wall. It shouldn't just be on your screensavers. It should be a piece of paper that you are checking, uh, just like going to the doctor's office. Like check off to make sure that you understand as you enter this group meeting right now, as we're talking about, you know, working with this client to increase their auto sales, we want critical thinkers. We don't want you to focus on being um, positive and harmonious. We want you to be open-minded. You're going to hear things you disagree with. We want you to disagree and speak up. You will not be punished if you are. Here are steps to take to make sure that, to remind us, we did the wrong thing in punishing you. People need to be constantly primed and reminded that this isn't just like a thing. This is something that we are going to live by and our reward incentive structure and our punishments are going to be altered as a result of this new way of thinking about what a group member is. And I think the third one would be is that we need to have an attitude of curiosity that permeates our social interactions. And what that really means is that we have to be tolerant of uncertainty. And sometimes there's going to be time deadlines and there's going to be time-sensitive decisions that have to be made. When they are there, those we know that scientifically that, that that is a strong negative correlation with curiosity. Most times we create artificial time deadlines and we create artificial decision points where we have to decide between options. As much as possible, we want to expand the time horizon so that people have an opportunity to explore differing ideas, diverge from what they've been thinking about, diverge from um, what's their common set of knowledge and principles and information that everybody holds, and to consider what is new and unique that each person is bringing to the table. And the way to do this concretely for step number three is you want to collect information anonymously and individualize before you get to a group. As soon as you get to that group meeting and you ask a question, there's called a cascade of behavioral cascade effects. The first person talks, and if that person is popular, is cool, physically attractive, funny, socially attractive, they will influence person two, three, and four who talks. To prevent those behavioral cascades, you want people um, providing their independent judgments and the more anonymous, the better. So, and the goal is to get the best, the best ideas and the best solutions in the room.
That's really, that. uh, really great stuff there. And it's so succinctly you've packed in tons of uh, really valuable mm. insights and, and practical takeaways. One thing I just want to quickly pick up on, which I see happening an awful lot in my work, is this notion of um, uh, false deadlines. And uh, when, you, when you're talking about staying open um, so that you can actually see what the real real problem is and real the really good disruptive solutions um this constant conflation of urgency to get things done and make progress versus doing the right things and and setting probably self-imposed artificial deadlines to create a sense of of urgency and, and purpose what's the reframing to ensure that you you don't lose the momentum but you you also stay curious and open you know because holding those two things together it's a, it's, it's a really good question you're raising. I mean, this, you know, it really depends on the culture. I think one of the important things is we have to really think about there are multiple midpoints between a decision, between the creation and fulfillment of an idea or an opportunity or an experience. And we have to create as many lines as possible to point out that we are moving in the right direction. We're making progress, even though we haven't decided anything. So one of the things that I've been doing over the past three weeks is I, I never watched Mad Men. So I'm, I'm binging it right now. It's going to be like the next three and a half years I'm going to be watching because there's so many <laughs> goddamn episodes. And one of the things which fits with this, with Jean, with your, with your question, is here's an advertising agency where they need to create the slogan, the ad, like the TV advertisement for these companies. And it makes it seem as if there is, you either finished it and it's ready or you haven't done the work yet. And I think we have to create these midpoints, these midpoints where, okay, I like the characters, but the storyline's problematic. I like the storyline, but I can't kind of imagine like what's the setting, what's the physical environment and setting where this person is showing a love affair for a Frisbee that's happening there. Um, you know, I like the color scheme but I don't like the characters and I don't feel the story is there. So as much as possible, we have to break things into their constituent parts. And with that, we can keep momentum as we remain curious and open. So good. Todd, thank you so much for coming on. This has been more than insightful. I, I could talk to you all day and I mean that. So thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to having you back. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, you, you guys are a good tandem. Um, so I am listening to your podcast, all the back episodes, because you guys are really intriguing to talk to. So thank you. Oh, thank yeah, you. Real, real pleasure. Until next time, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?